Angel 2, Revelation 14, 8, Babylon, the great is fallen because she caused all nations to drink of the wrath of her fornication. Which, by the way, if I was going to have a drink, I would call it the wrath of fornication. That sounds amazing. What a great What cocktail. is that, like vodka and tequila and <laughs> rum, and like Bull. all, uh, and Red Bull. Oh, good. And Viagra in that sunbed. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's how you get the fornication part. <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the This Is Not Church podcast. I am here with my brother, Nat. I will not ask him to say hello, so don't say hello, Nat. Perfect. All right, there we go. We're off to a great start. You did it exactly right. Um, We are... Pleased to have with us Nick Rude. I'm going to go ahead and read you his bio, and then we're just going to jump right into this conversation so we can have some fun. So let me let me read you his bio. It says, Nick Rude is a young pastor presently working at the Prescott Church in, in Central Arizona. His forthcoming book, Only Love, How Everything Was, Is, and Will Be, first acts apologetically toward God's character and advocates for it being only love. The second half deals with what it means for humans to be image bearers of such love and is intended to aid in the progression towards a more open-minded view of God and subsequently a more inclusive view of each other. Nick first attended Walla Walla University, earning a bachelor's degree in religion and graduated from Grand Canyon Theological Seminary, where his studies focused on practical theology and communications. He is presently a postgraduate at the University of Edinburgh, researching the intersectionality between philosophy, science, and religion. Nick's interests include eschatology, world religions, systematic theologies, intergenerational ministry, diversity, religious pluralism, and gravitate around the human perception of God. In his 2016 TEDx talk, which has over a quarter million views online, Nick spoke about the benefits of solitude to productivity and personal peace. He also co-hosts the Young Project podcast, which aims to empower young people to act against the stagnant nature of Christianity and sits on various nonprofit boards. A Pacific Northwest native, Nick enjoys alpine climbing, cycling, surfing, and storytelling alongside his wife, Joe. He also loves Legos and Star Wars franchise and the Marvel films, which he sadly does not enjoy alongside his wife. You can connect with him on social media at Nick Brood. Wow. So uh, there you go. There's your bio. (laughs) Wow. uh, Yeah. Welcome. We're so glad to have you here. Thanks. Thanks. You know, Eric, your editor that you yeah. just mentioned, he can cut off if after the first paragraph or two if he wants. Because that Nick Rude is an author. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see some people online. They put every you know thing they've ever done, and I was trying to do that. So that's about me. Anything of note is in those. Yeah three, four paragraphs, and uh, I'm pretty much a loser outside of that. So <laughs> well, yeah. that's, the, uh, but, that's the long and short. When, when I write my bio, I'm going to bring up my A-B honor roll in eighth grade. Amen. And the that's fact right. that I was, uh, oh, graduated in the bottom 10% of my class in high school. Yeah, I think I think all those things need to be in there, man. I think I won a citizenship award once. Award once so, John, <laughs> first of all, you're not allowed to read bios anymore. You, you kind of suck at this, so. Um, yeah, I do. Since, since I wasn't allowed to say hello, I'm just going to lob bombs now. Screw you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first question is, uh, where in the Pacific Northwest? Oh, goodness. All over. Yeah. I, uh, so I was born in Portland. Okay. And then wow. uh, I don't remember much of Portland. I was about six months old. We moved out to New England for five years. So all of my toddler memories 
all the first, um, you know, sports teams, I was, uh, assimilated into believing that they were the best. Uh, those are all the New England sports teams. So it's actually worked out pretty well being a, you know, a Red Sox and a Patriots, Bruins, Celtics fan since childhood, but then moved back to the Northwest, lived in Wenatchee for about 10 years. That's the, that was central Washington, lots of fruit trees out there. We had, you know, cherry trees in our backyard and stuff like that. And then Ellensburg for a little while. Worked as a ranch hand. That's kind of cowboy country, uh, a little bit south of Ellensburg. And then, yeah, several other places for high school, college time. But yeah, that's uh, mostly mostly Washington, a little bit of Oregon too. I'd like to just start this off by just talking to you about your your kind of your your faith upgrade upbringing, if you could, just kind of bring us up to speed on to how you are, who you are, and how you got to the point where you uh, decided to write this book. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting growing up in the eastern side of Washington. I say it's the worst side. It's just it's not as green, uh, but like it's far more rural than uh, Seattle or Portland or you know Eugene, anything in the Willamette Valley that's yeah. uh, a bit more populated on the western side of the Northwest. And because of that, I grew up going to mostly small, relatively rural, and uh, you know, subsequently fundamentalist churches. So that's kind of all I ever really. Knew that was a worldview I inherited. I grew up in the Avenus faith tradition. I'm actually presently employed in it, so I won't say anything uh, too much about my opinions of the of the church. I love my church uh, to an extent, right? I mean, yeah. I think that's the, the relationship so many of us have with whatever denominations we may be a part of. But yeah, it was really interesting growing up, actually. So I mentioned being living in Wenatchee for about ten years, and through eight of those years, they're all eight years of, of elementary school, I was homeschooled. So that just kind of maybe paints a little bit of a picture of the type of, you know, the type of environment that, uh, that was created for me. Um, so yeah, very sheltered, didn't really have much uh, connection with the outside world except for at church. So church was always like an actual, a really beautiful thing to me because I was getting to interact with uh, a bit more of a diverse uh, slew of people than I did at home, you know, just being around my parents, my, my little, little sister. So um, then after that, my parents, after, you know, being done with that eighth grade year um, of being homeschooled, my parents were adamant I needed to go to an Adventist school. So staying in the faith tradition for, for high school. So I went to a boarding school out near Spokane um, for all four years of, of high school. And it's incredible. Like looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, that place was like a prison in a, in a very real sense. Uh, but like it was the most freeing thing, like to my having come from, from the homeschool environment. It was incredibly freeing. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Uh, which was, it was just fascinating to, to look back on that. And then after that, uh, needed to go to an Adventist, uh, undergraduate education too. That was kind of a, a requirement. So Walla University, I actually love that school and it's a beautiful little pocket of the, of the Northwest, uh, with the blue mountains off to the, off to the East. And then it's wine country all around. So it's just, it's absolutely gorgeous down in the Southeastern Washington. But yeah, after, after that, got a job as a pastor out where I'm at now. And, you know, frankly, I think you guys mentioned uh, before we recorded that this podcast is really the deconstruction word, the D word comes up a right. lot. And it was once I was a pastor myself that I think my deconstruction started in earnest. I've only been a pastor two and a half years. So, I mean, maybe it's happened quickly. Maybe it's didn't happen soon enough. But um, 
when you're seeped in, I'm, I'm working in a relatively rural, again, uh, fundamentalist context, very similar to my, my upbringing and same denomination. Um, you start to, you start to really reconsider what is, what is church intended to be? Right. Is this, is this working? Is this, <laughs> do I subscribe to these ideals? Do I, do I think like this anymore? And if so, why? And if, if not, how are we going to find something better? And I think that's kind of what birthed the book, uh, looking, for, looking for something better than maybe what I'm seeped in right now and what my, what my upbringing had, had kind of tossed my way originally. So you, you've been in pretty much the same denomination your whole life, or did you kind of you, did you try out other denominations? Or You know, I, I, I think a lot of... It, 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 the short answer is no. I've been in the Adventist church my entire life. Like I said, educated through it, still employed in it for some reason. Sometimes I wonder why, but other <laughs> other days I'm like, man, this is, it's it's so interesting. This because it's like you're culturally attached to it, right? Yeah. Being seeped in it as a child, um, going through the educational system—that's where your contacts are, that's where your friends are, your family, your loved ones—and at the same time, like wanting to push back is is such a is such an interesting thing. I had a mentor about a year ago tell me this though, when I was really like. I had just finished writing the first draft of the book and I was really like, you know, wrestling with how to make this say what I actually wanted it to say, right? Once you get your ideas on paper, then you actually try and flush it out and make it, make it say what you want it to say. And he told me, he's an Adventist as well. He was like, you know, Nick, um, uh, just because I was struggling, I'm like, I don't even know if I'm an Adventist anymore, like ideologically or theologically, whatever. And he was like, you know what, Nick, you, because your opinions are an Adventist opinion because you're an Adventist. And like, don't, he was trying to tell me essentially like, don't just feel like you need to trash everything, the culture that you've inherited and that I, you know, dearly love the people that, uh, the connections that I've made, the people that I love as well. Um, don't feel like you need to just trash that because you've deconstructed a little bit. Uh, you're, you, you are an Adventist and therefore your perspective as variant to the denomination at large as it may be is, is a valid and a, an integral part of the overall Adventist mosaic. And that was something that really stuck with me. And so as hard as it is sometimes, you know, being in a tradition that I sometimes want to push back on for a lot of things, like that's, that's really kept me in at least at this point, I'm only 25. So <laughs> I'm relatively young. Who knows, uh, who knows what happens in year 26, 27 and so on. We'll have you back in five years and you, all of your opinions will be different, but. <laughs> totally. That's what, that's what I'm told happens. And I, I look back at five years of my life. That's totally what's happened in the last five. So yeah. For the, for those of us who um, maybe not familiar, you've said the word Adventist a bunch and I finally got it. So <laughs> there might be those listening who are like, what the hell is he talking about? I would have always said Adventist. So oh, are we talking okay. Seventh-day Advent? Yes, sir. We're it, talking about okay, the exact so, same thing. Okay, I, just making I, sure I'm pronouncing. I know, I, no, they're, yeah, they're both, and you're like, they're both right. I'm like, what the F is that? So <laughs> <laughs> if you wouldn't mind, could you give us like the, like the Cliff Notes version? Because there might be a lot of people listening who are like, know the name. You know, they might totally. understand the word, but not go, hey, well, I don't know anything about Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah, so it's a rather, it, it's a, it, it, their, their main selling point is a global denomination. I think it's something close to 30 million members worldwide. They've got churches like almost every country across the planet. So it's a rather diverse global body, which is actually a really neat thing. But the, the, to give you the cliff note versions, I guess, of the theology, the full title, like you said, Seventh-day Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist, whatever, whatever your persuasion is for how to say the last word, 
it, uh, the whole thing is they they attempt to keep the Sabbath by having church services and uh, you know the the main weekend events and things like that are on Saturday rather than Sunday because that's what the fourth commandment says. So they like no no claims may they, they find the claims foolhardy that people worship on Sunday, which again you know I push back. I'm like, heck, you worship whenever the heck you want. Brilliant, right, right. that's fantastic. Whatever works for you. But uh, again, that's the tradition I've seeped in. One really beautiful thing about the Adventist faith tradition, I think, is that it's a um, eschatologically, even though it's a, a very conservative evangelical denomination. It's, um, they do not believe in an eternal conscious torment and rather annihilationism. So now, uh, I don't know what your eschatological persuasion may be. It's not quite as uh, progressive as like maybe a universalist uh, perspective, but it's, it's a nice gateway to that, you might say. Um, and that they don't believe people are going to be burning eternally. So I, uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, there's a whole, a whole slew of, uh, of, interesting and, uh, you know, maybe peculiar bits about the tradition. But those, those two are probably, uh, I would say, for, from, you know, standing apart from traditional evangelicalism, those are the two main things, the Saturday okay. uh, as a worship day and then the eschatology. Yeah, the only association I ever had with Seventh-day Adventists was Seventh, well, actually, I have, a, I have an, an aunt who, who was part of that church for a while, who's now sure. Jehovah's Witness. But she's also bounced around from all kinds of stuff. So who knows? Yeah. There'll be something else in a, in a year or two. But the, uh, but when I was a young evangelical, I'm talking in my late teens, my wife and I attended a church that met at a Seventh day Adventist church on Sunday. Yeah. We're like, Hey, that's a good fit. Y'all don't have church on Sunday. We'll have church on Sunday. And they had church on Saturday. And it was a really neat, um, about a year and a half or two years of sharing space with those folks who were super generous and super like hospitable and nice. And, um, it worked out really well for, for quite a while. In fact, the church went off the rails when it left that place and decided to build its own structure and get into all that oh, wow. happy horse crap. So, which I've never been a part of a, yeah. of a church who decided to build something new where things did not go like horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> it should scare the hell out of your churches talking about building programs. Maybe it's time to like run. But, um, so that was really my only exposure yeah. to that, and, you know, yeah. I know I have friends who are still inside of that tradition and I know, and we argue and we disagree about certain things. Um, and certainly our eschatol, our eschatological views are, are somewhat different. I find, I find, um, the concept of conditional mortality or conditional immortality or annihilationism to be a, a nicer view then obviously eternal conscious torment, but I still don't think it goes far enough. You know, I still think that God wiping out, yeah, you know, and I would, I would agree. The population is still like, yeah, yeah okay, you're not going to torture them forever, but you're just going to kill them all. So, <laughs> or not, or not. That's why I say it. it's like, right. I think annihilationism is a gateway drug. It's the gateway it drug a gateway. to the, to a little <laughs> bit more of a hopeful persuasion. Yeah. I like it. I like it. You know, so hey, hey, the first hit of crack's always free. After that's going to cost you, you know, but <laughs> I still find it much more tolerable than, you know, somehow being supernaturally yeah. sustained for all of eternity while God pokes in the ass with a pitchfork or whatever he does. So, uh, so yeah. kudos on that. So that yeah, right. And it also, it always sort of struck me as, um, at least the, the people that I knew who were inside of it who tended to be vegetarian, right? Isn't there a lot of vegetarianism inside of... Yeah, that's another, that's another thing that now 
that's become so mainstream, uh, you know, as, as people that are maybe care about the climate, global warming, things like that, in a, as, a, as an effort to, to thwart, some of, thwart some of that. Or if you, you know, hate animal cruelty and things like that. But yeah, Adventists have been for the last 150 years or so, like a lot of them staunch vegetarians because of the Levitical law, though, uh, in the right. Old Testament. So, you know, won't eat things like pork, um and, and whatnot. I've never had a uh, bacon ever, and it's like wow. I'm, oh, wow. I'm, a, I'm a vegan now, so it's like I wouldn't dare oh, okay. touch it. But like <laughs> you know, it's like at, even in my childhood, it was never it was never something. We have these. It's really fascinating, actually. There's like these denominational brands. It's a whole you know, I guess a, a scheme, a money making scheme of its own. But that, that sell like veggie meat, so like you know, fake bacon strips and like fake sausage links. And yeah. fake turkey, whatever. I mean, it's it's like it's a whole business, and that stuff's yeah, actually so. probably far worse for you than than the real stuff, uh, just because <laughs> how processed it is. But like, we won't, we don't, we don't say that, you know. Uh, no. yeah. that's good though. It's, it, but it's like your own little internal Amway. That's that's great, man. It's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. All right. So we could uh, listen. I, 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 that that's fascinating to me I, as a non-denominational guy, and I have been for very most of my life. I always find it interesting to, to to talk about the different denominations. The only actual denomination I've ever been a part of uh, was Foursquare, and that's kooky in its own right. So I got no reason to. I got, I got no. I have. No, I can't lob you know any stones at anybody based on my own denominational background. But um, now every denomination is kooky in its own way. So. Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, and if you think your denomination isn't, you're wrong, and it's probably weirder than you think. Actually, if you don't think it's weird at all. Or you're weird. I mean, that's one. It could be all of the above. And you're probably weirder than you think. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you have to objectively take a step back and be like, "Oh no, that's weird." I actually had this. I preached a sermon on Sunday. I actually, didn't preach. I preached. Um, my associate pastor preached this Sunday, but I did. Com- I did communion, and I remember talking to the people, and I'm saying, "If you don't understand that this is weird, what we're doing here, you need to take a step back. What we're doing here is absolutely." You know, if you're objectively looking at this from the outside in, and what we're doing is we're symbolizing, at the very least, and some people literally, you know, believe that we're consuming the flesh and blood it, of it, Jesus. Yeah. Let's at least take a moment and recognize that's going to scare some weirdness. people off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus scared people off with it. You know, if you're not ready, if you're not willing to consume, my, to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and we were like, well, that's nice. We had a good meal, sir. We're out. We'll see you someplace else. So, um, there's enough weirdness that's inherent there. <laughs> But let's talk about this notion then in your book. Then I like I like I like the uh, I like the premise about God being love and love only. How does that play out when we when we t- first of all when we kind of get some pushback on that that God is love, but which always happens, right? And then the next, what, what's your what's your response to people who try to who try to say that God is love? Oh, and also, yes, this, 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 this. What's your what's your clarification on that? Yeah, so I think we've, you know, obviously in modern translations of the Bible, we've twisted a lot of uh, maybe Hebrew words and Greek words to mean things uh, in our modern nomenclature that they didn't necessarily to the people of of the day. And because of that, you know, we have these ideas that maybe justice is something that's retributive instead of restorative and so on and so on and so on. And so, you know, I think we're at a juncture in Christianity as a whole, and maybe it's, 
part of that just aligns with uh, my own deconstruction process over the last year and a half or two and a half years or whatever that I've been a pastor, right? Uh, that we need to redefine God. We need to think about God differently. And how do we come up with some sort of succinct language that that demonstrates what and who God is without those buts that you're talking about? Because they inherently come up. And everybody is like, no, God, yeah, God's love, but God will burn you eternally. Or God is love, but God wants me to, you know, hate this gay person or whatever, right? And we always make we always make these uh, these little excuses uh, for God and try and make God, I think, a little bit more like ourselves. Because I can, you know, I'm nowhere near only love as much as I'd love to be. I, I'm really, I'm really not. I uh, I don't always say the nicest of things. I don't always do the nicest of things. I'm just not always the nicest person. Uh, that'd be fantastic. And maybe you guys are. I don't know you that well. So if you are, <laughs> you know, kudos, kudos, yeah, more power yeah, to you. Yeah, I but, am not. <laughs> you get to keep trying, man. Okay, I'm work, I'm working on it. Really working, really, 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 really working hard. Yeah. Uh, so it's like we. I I feel like we needed some fresh language in how we think about God. And so, like I said, the first, or like you read in the bio, the first half of that book really is how do we think about God differently? So we, dealing with things like, I mean, in the Old Testament, all these all these instances of God's, uh, we, we, it's called often divine wrath when God is essentially endorsing genocide. Like how do we deal with that? Uh, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, how do we deal with that and co- understand it in its historical context? And hopefully uh, instead of seeing God as somebody that is in, terribly violent, uh, inherently just mean, uh, what, what do we see God as instead? And I think we can see God's love, God's grace, God's mercy shining through and we understand things in a historical context. Like how, uh, you know, thanks to like the monumental work of Greg Boyd and his Crucifixion of the Warrior God. I don't know if you guys have yeah, read that great book. No, huge two-volume book that like actually... Um, maybe it's just the opinions, uh, the worldviews, we might say, of the individuals that were uh, speaking, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes for those that can't see on the podcast, but speaking on God's behalf uh, or writing things, quote unquote, on God's behalf as well. So that we can work, we can work through those things and realize, hey, maybe that's actually us making those mistakes and kind of pro- projecting uh, these violent tendencies that we have onto God. And then, when we, I think, I hope, come to a conclusion that God really could be only love, that that's everything that God is, that's it. Um, I think it actually asks, it begs us, I should say, to re-examine who we are as humans. I think when we redefine God as being love and love alone, no ifs, ands, or buts, that we being image bearers, or at least that's a, a, a way that it, we're described as being throughout scripture, that being as being image bearers, we're actually only love too. And I mentioned earlier, I'm not only love, maybe if you guys are, that'd be great. But it's like, that's actually what we were intended to be. Like if, if we were made in the image of a, of a God who's only love, that means that you and I, are just we're we're of that divine love, uh, just as God God's self is. So, you know, I think our own experiences. So many times, and this happens in my tradition all of the time. We're very much like a sola scriptura people, right? Like we got to it's the Bible only. This is the only way we're going to ever know God. And I pushed back on that quite a bit in the second half. I think that in a very real way, our own experiences can actually act as so many of us desire Scripture to do. That we can see God in our own stories. 
you know, maybe better even than we can see God in a compilation of stories and myths and poems from 2000 plus years ago. But that I think when we combine the two things, when we combine scripture, a contextualized view of scripture with our own lived experience, we can actually maybe gain a bit higher of a view of humanity collectively. So not just ourselves, like I think of myself better because of it, but I also think about the people that I was told to hate <laughs> growing up right, in conservative right, yeah. evangelicalism, right? So, you know, the people I was told I should not uh, interact with because they're uh, they're part of the LGBTQI community or they're of a variant. I mean, I'm a, I'm a straight Caucasian guy, right? So they're of a variant skin uh, pigment than I am, or they believe in a, diff- a God that uh, differently than I believe in the God that I believe in. Uh, you know, they see, they see the world differently because they grew up in a variant culture and context. And so I was told to otherize these people Uh, But when I see God as being only love, and if I'm going to see myself and the rest of humanity as a part of that, you know, divine mosaic, I have to then begin treating those around me as though that they are the only love as well, that they're the love that God is. And I think, quite frankly, that really does change everything. So that's kind of the the purpose of the book, Uh, not only to think about God differently, hopefully kind of take down a toxic portrait of God. I mean, I opened the book with a Richard Dawkins quote, because I I love how vehement that guy uh, rails on Christianity. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't believe in that God either, because I really don't. Right. And yeah. I think when we when we can deconstruct that, to use the D word again, and come to a holy good portrait of God, that God that does no harm, a God that is infinitely gracious and merciful, so much changes, including how we including how we see each other. So that's the point of the book. It's a, it's interesting because um, I mean it dovetails nicely with stuff that I've read from people like Brad Jersak, you know, who will who will make the claim that obviously God is God is love, full stop, period, and everything else we would say about God is now an attribute of that love. It's a facet of that love. So I'm not denying that God is just and holy and righteous and maybe even wrathful. As long as I define those terms um, in their relationship to love, and then so divine wrath as a facet of love looks a whole lot different than divine retributive wrath against somebody that you has offended my honor. You know, the most of what Western evangelical has paint, uh, what Western evangelicalism has painted God as is a petty, small, easily offended deity with infinite power. You know, he's like the, he's like the genie in the <laughs> yeah. bottle, you know, bit of living space and like this infinite power totally. and so easily offended and so quickly pissed off. And, and so, and so over the top in his responses, like, Hey, you pissed me off. You dis- you dishonored me. I'm going to wipe out your whole nation. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, that's, that sounds right. We, I guess we can do that. But you mentioned something that, that really piques my interest too. This, cause I think that, um, Martin Luther's solas in some ways have, have wreaked havoc on modern, and our, and I totally. understand, I think I, trying to contextualize Luther and say, well, listen, as a, as a necessary pushback to, you know, some of the, some of the iniquities of the Catholic Church that he was so upset with and the fact that they had held scripture tightly for so long and kept it from people. I think that it's an understandable first step to say, no, 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 if it's not in the Bible, we're not talking about it. But what has become the inevitable result of that is, um, this literalism, right? This way of looking at the Bible that's borderline, if not outright idolatry. 
And the Methodist Church has a thing they call, I don't know if they call it the four pillars. Preach it, brother. There you go. Yeah. Call it idolatry. Call it out. It is idolatry. It's bibliolatry. I don't even call it that. It's idolatry. You've turned the Bible into an idol and you've allowed Job to trump the words of Jesus. How absolutely batshit crazy <laughs> is that? You know, like the, the psalmist now has the final word <laughs> over the risen Christ. No, screw that. Um, I'm, I told my church multiple times, if, 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 if I'm going to get in trouble, I'm going to, I'm going to err on the side of taking Jesus's word seriously and everyone else can get bent. I don't even care. But, um, but I like this notion of taking all of this within a contextualized <laughs> sense and say, listen, we're going to start with scripture. Sure. But we're also going to use our own experiences, church tradition to some extent. And we're going to temper all of that with some reason. Yeah. Hey, what a concept that all of this together might bring us to a place where we are continually evolving in our understanding of God. And uh, that seems to be a much more healthy viewpoint. I'm not a Methodist. I think John Wesley, sometimes I wanted to choke him out. You know, there's some things he says that I think are like anybody else. He's a mixed <laughs> bag of, of genius and a little crazy. But I, I, is, is that a similar sort of approach that you would say Adventism takes with with scripture not being necessarily the end all be all, but part of that mix or is it the other way around? No, I'd say that that's distinct. Adventist is distinctly the other way around and that it really is the Bible. It's interesting. We had a, uh, you know, it sounds very Jehovah's witnessy or no Mormon, like Mormons um, in the, we had like this prophet, we call her a prophet, a female, which is brilliant. Although we now don't ordain women. Uh, so we can go on for hours about that, but oh, a female Lord, in mercy. the mid 19th century that had uh, supposedly had a bunch of visions and whatnot. And we take her, the, I say we, the, the tradition collectively, I don't necessarily want to toss myself in that basket, but take her work as close. I would say, they say that scripture is as is higher, but I would say they take her commentary on scripture and things uh, just was just about as much, uh, how do we say, religiosity as, as they wow. do scripture. And so, and those are the two things. It's we'd say sola scriptura and sola sola Ellen White. Maybe those are the two <laughs> we would say. Uh, uh, so yeah, right. that's that's the it's it very it's it's interesting. Yeah, because I've definitely grown out of that. Uh, I don't want to say matured out of it. Uh, I, I'd hope that some maturity has come, but like that. Yeah, I I I see scripture quite differently than I would say the vast majority of people in my denomination. And that's not to say there aren't. Uh, outliers like myself, there are certainly people that that look at it a little bit differently. But again, uh, not uh, they're few and far between. It's not all that common. Yeah, it's it's similar. It reminds me of what happens at, at I. You know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mike Bickle in International House of Prayer or IHOP, as we like to call them. But that's pretty much you're indoctrinated into his into his whole gosh, I don't, it, it, his his whole prophetic vision of the end sure. times. And so yeah. his whole, if you, if you go and decide to be an intern or you want to be, you know, you want to be part of this whole thing, um, their whole thing is that they're, pre- they've set up, they've set up this place in Kansas city. that's a 24 seven house of prayer that they're ushering in the end times. That's what their purpose is. They're, is they're praying hasten, for the world. Yeah. To... Hasten, they want to hasten Armageddon, bring it all, come praying for calamity, down, praying oh, for yeah. Yeah, calamity and like for the antichrist to expose himself. But, but you really, I mean, you have to get indoctrinated into the, and the, these are all recorded, I guess, on CDs or DVDs or whatever, but there's hours and hours and hours of this individuals 
prophetic vision for how it all plays out at the end. And uh, all of that sounds very culty to me. You know, it's very strange because I watched a, a, a video teaching of his one time where he was talking about how to recognize the signs that you're in a cult. And I'm like, ironic. Yeah. Because everything you're saying is like, holy yeah. shit, that applies to you. You're just glib, like completely unaware that as you're preaching this message, it's like, oh, huh. Uh, maybe, maybe physician heal thyself, you know, maybe go take a look in the mirror. But anyway, I, I just think it's, I, I, I do, I do find it very interesting. I know John takes a different view of this and I'll let him chime here in a second, but I find it interesting when people who are inside of traditions where, where they say, listen, I'm going to push on, I'm going to push at this from the inside. I'm not ready to abandon the whole thing yet. And I'll be that fly in the ointment here. You know, and I'll find myself, and I've done that. That's part of the reason that I stay inside the church at all is because I'm just not willing to give it up yet. And I feel like I can affect some change, however monumentally small it might be. My place, I feel, is to push from the inside out. And John's view is like, no, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stand on the outside and critique as one who was once a part. So you have some, you know, it's not like you don't have any voice here. God knows you put you put your time in and you have your own experiences. But John, what, what do you think, man? Going back a little bit, I was just kind of wondering, you know, where, you know, as you as we talk about this deconstruction thing, right? So then you you mentioned that etern- eternal conscious torment isn't really part of your your theology. It's yeah. not it's not so you didn't you didn't really have to uh deconstruct that. But where was like where were the starting cracks? Uh, that made you start questioning some of your traditional faith, and that that kind of led you to where you are now, and, and writing this book and asking these questions. And what, what was like the what was like the first the first step or the first crack in the in the facade? Yeah, it's it's interesting because now I really do not read much of scripture at all, literally. Uh, you know, that's kind of what happens. I think eventually you start to read it through, hopefully a bit more of a contextualized lens. Um, but it was a, a passage of scripture that I read literally. And that was kind of the, 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 the tipping point for me. Uh, it's first John, uh, one uh, or first time four six. Oh, I'm terrible with verses and stuff. <laughs> Wherever it says that God is love and that those that love God, uh, like they look like love. Uh, first John, oh gosh, first John one nine, first John. I think uh, one nine. Terrible. I think you're right, but I'll look it up. Yeah, something like that. You can. Uh, I'm terrible. I, I'm I'm much more of a like a big picture guy, and I've always uh, been terrible the with man. the little details. So. Uh, forgive me for not knowing my Bible as well as I should as a pastor, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was it. I was like, if God is if God is love, the, all of these other things, and that would you know maybe to an extent mean annihilationism that God would just let half of humanity or whatever per- percentage of humanity just peter out because because they weren't good enough or they didn't believe in the right thing. If God is really love and love as I understood it was, was still a very, I think as we all grow, no matter, I mean, I'm only 25, like I said, at the top of the program, but like uh, 10 years from now, I'm going to understand love hopefully a lot more deeply than I do today. But 10 years ago, I understood, I didn't understand. I, looking back at myself, I really didn't understand love, but I still knew something enough about it to recognize that if God was, love, if that's what God was, that, wow, like 
we're really cutting God short as far as the boxes that we put God into. I think so often we like to create boxes that are just like slightly bigger than ourselves so that we can still like understand God completely and not think of God as this infinite de- deity or whatever. Um, and so we, we, we like to kind of make God something that's tangible and touchable for us that we can kind of control and manipulate a little bit. And we, we've just kind of, yeah, diluted God's love down to something like that with all those butts that we were talking about earlier that follow. And so, yeah, once I, once I started imagining God as a little bit bigger than maybe what I'd been taught to see God as that's, that was kind of the linchpin that, that, um, that, that kind of started the, the avalanches that were at least in my own life. So you read a verse in the Bible that you chose to take literally, <laughs> um, which I'm assuming then kind of dovetailed into you having a more inerrant or um, a more uh, look at the Bible that is not inerrant, as not, um, um, or, or have you always had that view of the Bible? And this was uh, kind of an interesting point of you taking something literal that maybe you normally wouldn't. No, everything was always pretty much, I was always taking everything at face value. And so it's, so that was, that I took at face value. And because of that, taking that one verse at face value, I started to not take everything else at face value. So yeah. So that's it. It's, that's an interesting, I mean, uh, it's an interesting look at coming to that conclusion that the Bible is not an error, that the Bible is, uh, does have flaws, that the Bible has uh, maybe some things that we're, that we're not understanding correctly or that they didn't understand correctly when they wrote it. So I, it's, it's a very interesting way to get to that point. Um, so stepping back a little bit, in the Adventist, Adventist, Adventist Adventist. tradition, Adventist, sorry, Adventist. I'll answer that. And the Adventist Adventist tradition is, do they look at the Bible as inerrant or do they have a more open view of the Bible as uh, the word of, uh, maybe more like inspired, but not necessarily inerrant? It's interesting. So in, which this seems so backward to, to the way it maybe ought to work, but by and large, as far as doctrinal, you know, written doctrines that we're, you know, supposed to follow. Scripture is actually looked at in a bit more of an open view. It's perhaps, it's, it's inspired, certainly, but that, you know, God used people and people make mistakes. That said, how it is articulated by, uh, by the vast majority, I shouldn't say all, but by the vast majority of professionals, um, you know, pastors, uh, people in the academy, there, they by and large articulate it as being something that is to be taken at face value and literally. So it's an interesting dichotomy in that, like, if I am a trying as a pastor, is my you know doing my job, preaching on a weekend, and I'm trying to dig in contextually into something, my congregation is not there at all. That's not what they've been taught to do throughout. If they've you know grown up in the tradition, or if they even came in after only a little while. They, they haven't been taught to do that, even though that is like what the denomination, at least it sounds like in the, in the, in, you know, doctrinal uh, type statements that it is to be a little bit more of an open view of scripture. So yeah, it's something that even though it's written there, it's just really not practiced. So there's freedom for it, but it's, yeah, it is pushed back on, uh, significantly. Yeah, that's understandable. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing because I've noticed that even in, even in evangelical circles where, um, where we were taught to take the Bible as the inerrant, you know, uh, literal word of God, 
I noticed there was this tendency to take Paul at face value an awful lot. You know, women be silent in the church. Hey, I'm sorry. There it is in black and white. Women shut up. They can't be, they can't be pastors. They can't be, they can't teach men because we've got a couple seemingly obviously literal texts from Paul. And we, then we nuance the shit out of the words of Jesus. When he says yeah. that, you know, how come there's all these people who claim to be Christians who have both their eyes and both their hands? Oh, now we can nuance. Now we can understand that Jesus might have been using hyperbole or something to that effect, you know, some sort of like, otherwise there should be a whole lot of handicapped Christians walk around with, with one or both eyes gone. And then, you know, pushing back on that, that's a, that's a, that's a borderline silly example, but Whenever you talk about Jesus as being nonviolent, whenever you t- talk about Jesus as mandating that we feed the poor, that we care for the for the needy, um, because he said so, those always get contextualized, you know. But the words of Paul that that are more sometimes divisive and you know seem to carve out more black and white lines. Oh, those are always literal. My God, just seems to be that evangelicals have a very selective view of Scripture as being inerrant. They haven't, most of them, given away all their money to the poor. Because, you know, as I've been told by many of them, well, God wasn't talking to everyone. You know, Jesus was just talking to that one guy because money had a hold on him. And, well, maybe if you push back on that really, really hard, the money may have a hold on you as well. So anyway, I just thought that was an interesting dichotomy as well. Since you used the word dichotomy, I want to say it. I want to say it too. Um, (laughs) It's a great word. I'm a big follower of people who use words like dichotomy. I love it. (laughs) No, and you're totally right. I don't think there's, I I don't think there's a tradition out there where you're not going to have some semblance of uh, discrepancy between the ways that you're looking at variant areas of scripture. I mean, even in my tradition, like it's really interesting. You mentioned uh, not taking the words of Jesus seriously. Like, yeah, to go out and like, <laughs> if you're, you're doing it to the least of these, you're doing it to me. We're like, right. oh, well, you know, the least of these, that's probably, you know, some, you know, white middle class person who's got it just fine. They, we don't like, we don't even, we're like in a completely different world. I think it's sometimes diff, totally different headspace. That's just, it totally, yeah, totally screws up with the way that we read scripture. Or then, yeah, then we'll get down to like Revelation. And my tradition does this a lot. Uh, let's take all that literally. There's actually going to be like a beast and there's, look at all this stuff. And there's going to be, you know, this, these flames. And it, it, it is, yeah, it's super cringe how we can yeah. go between yeah. those two things that, in my view, I would be like, if I, if I had to, you know, if I had to pick one, that we should probably take a little bit more literally. It would make sense that it was a guy that was, you know, teaching, and I was he was actually teaching uh, rather than some guy that had a dream uh, and uh, kind of went batshit crazy on us. Probably tripping on something. He sounds like he's on a bad mushroom trip, and he's just <laughs> I, like, I, I, it might have been Brian Zond and somebody somebody of that ilk though who teaches on Revelation, talking about it. Actually, Rob Bell was the first guy I heard say this years and years and years ago, talked about um, the notion that um, Revelation was written in code and that it was really because the church was under such immense persecution that they couldn't come out and say all of the things they had to say about the empire 
without being murdered. And so yeah. they couched it all in these really hyperbolic, you know, these, these really hyper symbolic terms and used all this, apo- this apocalyptic genre to talk about and critique the Roman Empire. And when you look at those things through that lens, you go, yeah, I think there's something there. You know, Brian Zahn would say the whole thing is a, is a, is a, is a critique of the Roman Empire, you know, and it's, you know, and, and taken in that vein, I think it makes a lot more sense than some future event. But I was raised, John was raised. The dispensationalist view. Oh, yeah. And we were, yeah, and not just, totally. I mean, the hyper, I mean, I'm talking about how Lindsay's late great planet Earth, buddy. I'm talking about 14 different predictions about when Christ was going to return. All of them wrong, by the way. I want my money back, Hal. Um, you know, you got this knucklehead in San Antonio who's, oh, his name will always escape me, but I mean, he just has, he's made millions off the blood moon stuff and the, writes book after book after book, making all these wild predictions, none of which ever come true. And he never, ever apologizes and says, no, shoot, got that wrong. It just Um, goes on to the next one. He just goes, actually, we miscalculated. Turns out 2025 now. Now, now, now we're sure about that one. By my new book, I'll explain why I was, now I'm right again. And there's just this whole cottage industry of people making a lot of money. Uh, Hagen is his name. Is it Kenneth Hagen? Uh, anyway, doesn't matter. I don't. I don't mind dropping names. Screw these guys. They don't get anonymity on this show. You want to be a jackass? <laughs> you want to say stupid shit? I'm going to call you out. You want to make money off people's fears? Um, for the 15 people who listen, you'll know who I'm talking about. All right. So, <laughs> John Piper. Every time I say his name, a puppy gets kicked. Sorry about that. I said his name again. Um, but anyway, that 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 gets me riled up because. You know, they're taking this, you know, they take this view of scripture that is so hyper literal. So, you know, and here's the, here's the kicker, John and Nick. Think about this one for you want to talk about, you want to talk about taking things literally. I've told people this for years. Read the first sentence of the book of Revelation. And what did it tell you? <laughs> I, John, was in a vision or in a dream. And right? I tell you these things which must soon come to pass. Yeah, but Jesus is supposed to return soon too. So, I mean, why? But there's your literalist. I mean, anyway, so say we got off on that. So when you say eschatology, I typically think end times eschatology. I don't always think like, you know, heaven and hell eschatology, but is, what is the, what is the viewpoint of and I don't mean to put you here, by the way, as the spokesman for the Adventist movement. So I and I'm a that, terrible spokesman. <laughs> if there's an Adventist listening, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but in, in general, does their, does their view on, you know, those kinds of things, do they fall sort of like the left behind sort of theology? Or is there something more like Jehovah's Witnesses are pretty sure Jesus came back a long time ago, or at least once or twice. I'm not sure the exact theology, but. You know, they're probably closer to the truth anyway, but, um, <laughs> but I don't know. Pentecost, I mean, maybe. Yeah. 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 But no, I, I, no, this is, you, you keep putting me on the spot. Let me just speak for 27 million people across the world. Um, uh, yeah. This, in general, it, like in like general terms. Well, let, let me tell a story. Actually, I, I was nine years old and, uh, my one thing the faith tradition often often does, Adventism often has, are these traveling evangelists within the tradition that go to different churches within the tradition and put on maybe a two three week revelation seminar. And so you'll have evening events uh, throughout the like throughout the week. So you know Monday through Friday, and then Saturday Sunday you might have two or three different events uh, throughout the day. So you've got people you know committing like 
all of their free time for 20 days or whatever it is to go to these things. And they would, it was, it was brilliant. I was nine years old and I, I absolutely fell in love with it. I went to one the first night or whatever it was. And I sat on the front row, I kid you not, for the rest of the two, three weeks, whatever it was. And the, the way they get you to come back is this. They'll give you the talking points or like a little leaflet of notes uh, that the presenter, the pastor usually, and they're not theologians, right? They're, they're not like academics at all. They're just people that think they know what they're talking about. Um, and they, <laughs> that's what we pastors are, right? We're not really right, like yeah, that yeah, smart. Yeah, We're yeah. just like, we I think that nothing. God loves us maybe. Yeah. So like he, you'd get the, you'd get the, the pamphlet. And then at the end, if you went to all 21, let's say it was 21, if you went to, and you got every single little leaflet of it and you went to all 21, you would get a binder that it goes in, you know, nice red, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember, it was Revelation Now. That's what the title was, the seminar. You know, you get a leaflet in the, in the mail. Everybody in the, in the area would with beasts and whatnot on it, nice graphic design. Um, it's actually funny. My uncle runs a printing company that often prints a lot of these uh, pamphlets for the Adventist Church. Uh, so shout out to Uncle Larry. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, like you get the binder and then you felt really cool. Uh, but within the binder, you know, it, I, I feel like having gone to a number of them since, you know, the tender age of nine, it's very interesting. So the one thing that is distinct, I would say, about Adventism collectively is the whole left behind. So talking about the rapture, that is something that's, that is left behind by the Adventist tradition. We do not, the rapture is, they, they, they rail on that as being something that's totally inappropriate. So fantastic, I agree. Uh, but then they do take a relatively dispensationalist view for most of the rest of the book. I mean, there's a few things that they kind of have. It's interesting. It's, I'd say it's a mix, actually, between the historicist and a uh, futurist view. Because like they're, they'll take a lot of, you know, they think like the Libs and Earthquake that happened, was that like 18 or... 1540, okay, I'm terrible with dates again, great with ideas, terrible with <laughs> particulars. But the lives in earthquake, they say that that's had something to do uh, with with uh, with something that's in Revelation. And um, there was a blood moon that happened over New England, I think, in the 19th century. And that's, again, although, you know, if, you've, if you live, uh, you live, uh, John, on the, the West Coast, so you know what forest yeah. fires look like. You get a blood moon, yeah. uh, what? Yep. Two months, yeah, two months night. a year. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, like, yeah. whatever. But that's just uh, those types of things. So there are some things that are taken very uh, past tense, right? Historicist, and then a lot of other stuff that's like this is yet to come. One thing that is railed on, and they they love this collectively as Adventists. We love this, I should say. Um, the three angels' message. They always talk about how it is something that the church, uh, the, the the church collectively, meaning you know church. Uh, capital C church, not the, just a single denomination. It's something that they don't talk about. And so as Adventists, we're like, yes, we talk about the three angels message, which I'm a terror. I'm going to have to Google what it is. Just a second. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I got, I got it right here. Know we're talking about. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. You want to go my angel, memory. So angel one, Revelation 14, six has the everlasting gospel to preach to all who are on earth for the hour of his judgment has come. Angel two, Revelation 14, eight, Babylon, the great is fallen because she caused all nations to drink of the wrath of her fornication, which, by the way, if I was going to have a drink, I would call it the wrath of fornication. That sounds amazing. What a great What cocktail. is that, like vodka and tequila and <laughs> rum, like Bull. all, and Red Bull, oh, good. And a of Viagra in that sunbed. Oh. 
<laughs> that's, that's how you get the fornication. Fight. I do not want to party with you. That is. You uh, probably shouldn't. You can't. You can't keep up, twenty-five-year-old. No, this I don't. Is, uh, almost fifty-year-old. So. Uh, no, man. Gracious. Oh. You're just crapping. I'm so sorry to all the Adventists who might. We're, we're not being irreverent on purpose. We just. That's just how we are. All right. Uh, <laughs> Angel three says. Revelation fourteen nine. If anyone worships the beast and receives its mark, they shall drink of the cup of the wrath of God. Yes. So of course we love the mark of the beast. Uh, and the the second one is interesting. The Babylon has fallen, right? And I love how they throughout history they'll go through and they'll like attribute Babylon to Rome and they'll attribute it to all these empires, right? And right. then they're like America first, uh, <laughs> and like. Or the greatest nation the world has ever seen. And I'm like, that sounds a lot like empire to me. And they're like, yeah. no, 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 we're, no, we're different. We're oh, the oppressed. Yeah. We're the oppressed. Yeah. We're, Jesus. Yeah. No, we, we, we just talked about, as a matter of fact, we had a, we talked about that on Sunday, the, uh, the sin of nationalism and, you know, American exceptionalism being this thing that we were all raised in, steeped in. Um, and then it being so antithetical to the gospel, which really admonishes us to be wary of any empire. You know, and I do love that. I, I think that I think Revelation is, in many many ways, specific to the Roman Empire, but but it's not it's not exclusive. The Roman Empire was just another iteration of another oppressive empire, and many many more would come and go. I don't think America will be the last either. No, not at all. I mean, if and when America ceases to be an empire, you know, the next one will come up. I mean, um, when I was a kid and John was a kid, um, everything Revelation tied to the USSR. Russia. It was yeah. all the Soviet Union. It was USSR. It was because they're a bunch of godless heathens and um, Those socialists. How yeah. dare they? And you know, and it did go so far <laughs> as to talk about and John. You know, and John the Revelator. He talks about you know this image of these giant grasshoppers. Remember, those were supposed to be the helicopters that were flying. It was. I had all these cartoons, man, had comic books, and all kinds. Of, and it, now it's so grotesque to me because it was all geared at children. You know, because we were indoctrinated with this stuff from a very young age, John took it especially hard, I think, and didn't sleep for most of his adolescence because we're all going to get snatched away in the middle of the night or our parents were going to get snatched away and we're going to get left behind. And um, we live in the Pacific Northwest, which is, you know, full of earthquakes. And every time we had earthquakes, someone thought the rapture happened. It was like, holy shit, we're all going to, you know, we're all going to, wait a minute. You wouldn't, you'd be flying. Don't worry. You're fine. You just got left behind. Um, but <laughs> you're just going to go to hell eventually. It's fine. Yeah, it doesn't. It, yeah. I mean, when I did finally begin to unwrap that stuff and really jettison most of it, you know, there was, I can't even explain to you in words, the peace that came. There was so much anxious anxiety and stress that I don't even think I was aware of until it was gone. And then I just breathed easier. I'm like, oh, that's all crap. Oh, okay. Now I can get on with my life and I can just preach the gospel and I can just do the things that I feel like I'm called to do. And so, yeah, it was an easy thing to put down because it had created so much stress and strife in my life anyway, that when I finally heard somebody articulate it well enough and say, nah, there's another way to read those scriptures that does not point to a hundred percent futurist, you know, point of view. So, um, it's liberating. So, and it, it, it dovetails nicely with, I think, with what's happening and hopefully I, I can't wait to read your book. Um, but what I think will happen in your book, there's a lot of liberation there. Um, as we begin to really reconstruct an image of God that is predicated on love, that is, you know, defines God in those terms and those terms only, it takes a lot of that stuff down a peg or 10 or 15, you know, just 
brings it back to a tolerable point, you know? I sure hope so. That, you know, if, if the book does any good at all, it would be that people can breathe a little bit easier after they read it. And I would hope that not only do they gain a higher picture of God, uh, but also that higher view of each other, that our stories matter, that, you know, what the, the crazy stuff that we've gone through, all of us collectively in our childhoods because of, you know, fundamentalism, that maybe um, as, as, as tumultuous as that has been, that like we can come to a higher view of, of ourselves even, even through all of that and like use those stories for the benefit of others and maybe uh, help save some of the others from some other people from, from ex- having those experiences or thinking about themselves in that way. Because man, I, I was a wretch uh, that needed saving and I hated myself for a long, a long while. I was not a good person, you know? And now it's like when I attempt to see myself as made in the image of God, a God that is not vengeful or wrathful or, or hates anyone, uh, that would do the, anything and everything to, to, be in, to be in you know, oneness, relationship, whatever you want to call it with us, that, man, that I, I start to feel that liberation uh, away from my own story and not just uh, away from the, the nasties of scripture, but the, yeah, the, the nasties of my own life. And I, I sure hope that everybody can get a little bit of that maybe after reading the book. Yeah, that's amazing. So, uh, when can we expect? I, I, your your website said August ish. Says August. This is now. <laughs> I know. Is that a, is that a, a realistic time frame, or you think it might get pushed back a little bit? I think it might get pushed back. So, okay. I I don't know because I haven't. I have yet to see a cover, and I haven't. I haven't emailed Ralph in like a week. So, actually, I'll probably email him as soon no as we're done right. here. Because uh, and I'll let you guys know. I'll see if I can get you. A- yeah, at the rate things are going with us, the way that we have so many things recorded, by the time this releases, um, we should be pretty close to the time that your book is releasing, or maybe just after. So we'll get you at least. Gosh, what do you think, John? Four or five. Six, oh, easy. at least four or five yeah. or six people who will probably buy the book. So we'll help you with that. <laughs> Thank we you so play. much. Wow. If, we can, wow. if we can push Kristen Dumay into the New York Times list, which I'm sure that we've done, John. Um, I think it was oh, all yeah. you guys. I mean, Absolutely. I, I, it was all I, us. I think she, I, I sent her a message and I expected more gratitude from her. Um, she she even replied. She, she said, thanks. That was it. I'm like, that's all I get for helping propel <laughs> you into the New York Times list? God, man, they, they, how quickly they forget who made them. I mean, yeah. <laughs> she's so great. I love her, man. Um, yeah. You'll buy her book too in the meantime. But Nick, man, you're, I, I am eagerly anticipating. I'm, I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting uh, a, 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 an advanced copy so I can, I can just delve into this. It sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, I just want to add my two cents and just thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with us uh, and apologize for making you the spokesperson for your whole denomination. <laughs> yeah, you know, I tried. I tried, everybody. <laughs> you, uh, let, me, let, me, let me just say this. You did better than if someone was to make, make me the spokesperson for the whole evangelical non-denominational church. Uh, I would have just looked stupid and not knowing what to say, even though I was in it for a really long time. You just used the adjectives that I would have described my attempt. <laughs> stupid, <laughs> not knowing what to say. But hey, you know, uh, I'll, uh, I'll take it as a compliment. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank no, you guys for, sure. for, for hanging yeah. out. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank and, uh, you, man. We'll, we'll definitely link to all of your, uh, your social 
media sites for you. And, uh, and when the book, uh, is released, we will definitely, you know, give you a shout out as best we can on that as well. So again, just thank you for, thank you for coming on and chatting with us. It's, this has been awesome. Yeah. And I've loved every minute of it. So thank, thank you. you guys. Thank you. Amen. Right on. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.